So today I'm reading Psalm 110, which can be found on page 951 of the Black Bibles. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor, Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and so he will lift his head high. Good morning everyone, it's great to see you here. If we haven't met yet, my name's Nandor and it's my privilege and joy to present God's word here to you this morning. Thanks in particular to friends and family who came along to hear me preach. It's really good to see you guys here as well. Before we begin, let me pray. Father God, we pray that you would work in our minds and hearts this morning to extract your truth from Psalm 110. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Nandor, what a strange name. (laughs) I've had people say all sorts of interesting things about it when I introduce myself to them. From, wow, cool name, man, I'm jealous, to people asking that I say it a few times for them, before they throw up their hands in exasperation and ask me to spell it out. To one fellow who laughed at it as I introduced myself, and it was midday, and as far as I could tell, he was sober. (laughs) In some ways, the name Melchizedek is a bit like my name Nandor. It's obscure, it's hard to spell, and it seems out of place in its current context, which for Melchizedek is here in this psalm. So Melchizedek might be a name that's a bit out there for you. I know plenty of kids with Old Testament biblical names, from Noah to Elijah to Samuel, but I'm yet to come across anyone called Melchizedek. (laughs) Who knows, given the number of expectant mums here today, (laughs) that may change. Anyway, this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. I wonder why. Is it because of Melchizedek? Do you know who Melchizedek is and why he's important? As some of you know, I work for the Air Force. Around 15 years ago, the chief or the leader of the Air Force at the time was a man named Angus Houston. He went on to become the second longest serving chief of the Australian Defence Force. And then afterwards, he took on leadership in matters of national importance, such as the um, investigation of the Malaysian Airlines crashes, and then under Julia Gillard, leadership of the Asylum Seeker Panel. He was and remains an excellent leader who looks after his troops, and he leads from the heart, not through coercion. It was obvious from his visit to my unit at the time when he was Chief of the Air Force how much he valued his people. 
He had the knack of getting people on side and inspiring them to follow him. At one point during his visit, when I was washing my hands in the bathroom, he came in to use the urinal. It was just him and me. Without skipping a beat, he started talking to me and asking me who I was and what I was working on at the time. I told him I was working as the engineering manager on a joint US-Australian project. This just prompted more questions from him. International engagements were always of keen interest to senior officers. He'd been briefed on my project, but he wanted to know more about it from the coalface. Now, I'm not really comfortable talking to guys in the bathroom <laughs> at the best of times. But given who was standing before me and his keen interest in my work at the time, I wasn't really comfortable excusing myself either. Anyway, we had a very productive professional conversation and let me just say, my eye contact was exemplary. <laughs> Angus Houston was a very powerful man. He was in charge of billions of dollars of lethal high-tech equipment, a workforce of over 10,000 fighting men and women, one of the most capable air forces in the world. And here in this psalm, we see someone who is even more powerful. Here in verse 1 is a king who is given all power and authority to rule. Have a look at verse 1 with me. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now that looks a bit confusing. One Lord speaking to another Lord, what is going on here? Let's fast forward 900 years from the day of David, King David who wrote this psalm, to the day of Pentecost. After Jesus has died on the cross and he's ascended to heaven, Peter, his, I guess, senior apostle, stands in front of the Jewish crowd in Jerusalem. And he says that this verse, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, is actually talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one sitting at God's right hand. This happened, that is Jesus sat down at God's right hand, when Jesus rose from the dead and went back to his heavenly father. And one day Jesus is the one who's going to defeat his enemies and stand on them. Verse two goes on. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. God is going to extend Jesus' kingdom. Now, people get excited or have been getting excited, particularly last year, about North Korea flexing its nuclear muscles in the region and becoming powerful. But the power that North Korea can exert is nothing compared with God spreading Jesus' rule, not just across the earth, but across the whole universe. Please look with me now at verse 3. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendour, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. In verse 3, this king's soldiers, they follow him willingly. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. How's that for poetic? 
The commentators are divided on exactly what that phrase means. Most think it has something to do with the energy, the zeal, the momentum of the young men as they follow their king. Do you see Jesus as king of the universe and someone you should submit to and follow? Or do you see Jesus kind of like Prince Harry, showing him respect, perhaps, but not as someone that's really worth obeying? He hasn't really got much power and authority. If we forget Jesus' power and authority, we won't obey him either. Not if obeying him is going to cost our job or strain our relationships. After all, why willingly obey a king who doesn't have any power and authority over our lives and over our universe? But that's not Jesus. Okay, so we've seen that this king is powerful. We've seen that his people love him. Next we'll see that this king is also a priest, a high priest forever. This is where we get to meet Melchizedek, the man with that peculiar name, who's a big deal, a very big deal. Look with me please at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I recently saw a lecture on YouTube of this verse by the great theologian D.A. Carson. It went for over an hour. I'll try to keep my explanation a little shorter. (laughs) So let's now take a crash course on Melchizedek. So starting with ancient Israel. Over 3,000 years ago, God gave the Israelite nation a set of laws, the most famous of which is the Ten Commandments. Although God gave Israel many laws, God knew they couldn't keep the law properly because Israel was sinful and God was holy. He demanded moral perfection. And Israel, like us, weren't perfect. And so God set up a sacrificial system, a way that sinful Israelites could relate to a holy God without being destroyed by God's anger. God's righteous anger or wrath at their sin. A key part of it involved blood, animal blood. I don't think the RSPCA had an office in Jerusalem back then. The animals were killed instead of the humans. In place of the Israelites, the animals perished, but the Israelites survived. Sinful Israel could stay in a relationship with a holy God. It was actually a great mercy from God. God did it because of his love for them. He wanted to be in relationship with them. And God appointed human priests to do the slaughtering. However, these sacrifices had to occur year in and year out. Like using a dose of morphine to treat the pain of a broken limb, or perhaps a smashed elbow, it was only temporarily effective. So now we have a brief understanding of the priest role. On to Melchizedek. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham, who is Israel's great ancestor, 
is shown coming back from a battle victorious and is met by Melchizedek. Melchizedek, we're told, is a priest of God and a king, all in one. Melchizedek gives Abraham bread and wine and blesses Abraham. And then Abraham gives him a tenth or a tithe of all he owned. And that's it. That's all we're told about Melchizedek. We're not told where he came from. We're not told who he begat. We're not told when he died. We're not really told much at all. But when we turn to the New Testament, we find something surprising, very surprising. Hebrews chapter 7 draws out some implications of Abraham's mysterious encounter with Melchizedek. I encourage you to read it for yourself sometime. It's a little bit strange to our ears, but to cut to the chase, Hebrews chapter 7 says that biblical priests are kind of like mobile phones. What I mean is this. Just like there are different brands of mobile phones, Apple and Samsung, so in the Bible, there are different brands of priests. You've got the Old Testament Israelite brand of priests who offer the animal sacrifices at the temple. That's one type or one brand of priest. And then you've got the Melchizedek brand of priest. Just like there are different types of mobile phones, there are different brands of priests. Just like Apple is clearly a superior brand to Samsung, so Melchizedek's brand of priest is superior to the Old Testament brand of priest, brand of priest who followed Israel's law and the animal sacrificial system that I spoke about earlier. And Jesus, we're told, is the Melchizedek brand of priest. So Jesus is a far better priest than the Old Testament priests. He is our great high priest. He didn't slaughter animals for our sin, but shed his blood on the cross for our sin. He's a far better priest, and his blood is no temporary stopgap. It takes away our sin forever, fully, and finally, unlike the blood of animals. Jesus is a far better priest than Israel's Old Testament priests. If we trust his final sacrifice for our sins, we can come before God confidently, knowing we're truly and deeply loved and accepted by him. Imagine your whole life was played on the big screen behind me for everyone to see. Every word you've ever said, every thought you've ever had, every action you've ever taken, up there in high definition for everyone to see both the good things you've done and the things you'd rather keep hidden. 
How would that feel? God, the judge of the universe, knows all of this. He sees all of this. Are there things that you'd rather keep hidden? Now imagine Jesus comes along and edits out all the bad bits. Those words you're ashamed of. Those thoughts. Those actions. Those regrets. Jesus edits out of this movie of your life all the bad bits. So there is nothing left to be ashamed of. That's what Jesus does as our high priest. His blood washes us clean of sin, from all sin, so that before the heavenly judge we are pure. We are washed, we are without shame. Now in a room this size, perhaps there's some of you carrying a great deal of shame. But because Jesus is the great high priest, no matter what's, what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, if you put your faith in Jesus, you've been washed clean, fully and finally. Speaking personally, I notice that when I feel guilt for what I've done, for when I've done wrong or not done what is right, I often push the guilt away. I rationalise it, I ignore it, I run from God. This is a really unhelpful, unnecessary and silly thing to do. God isn't stingy with his grace. He gave his own son to wash us clean of sin and guilt. If we have faith in him, we can always come before his mighty throne confidently to find mercy and grace in our time of need. Okay. So we've seen that Jesus is the all-powerful king with authority to rule the universe. We've seen that as high priest, his blood washes away all our guilt. Next we see that he will judge. He will judge the world. Have a look with me, please, at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will... He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Here in these two verses, we see a terrifying picture of Jesus. He is working as one with God Almighty to bring about a final day of judgment where all who oppose them are crushed. When I was four, my parents moved to communist Hungary, uh, escaped communist Hungary rather, and moved to Australia. We weren't particularly religious, but growing up it seemed that we were at Hungarian church every couple of months, commemorating or commiserating some event of national significance that Hungary faced in its 1,000 plus year history. 
behind me, you should see a picture of Hero Square in Hungary's capital Budapest. You'll note three little cherubs in the foreground. By the time this photo was taken, I think they're in the process of ceasing to be three jet-lagged little devils. <laughs> Hero Square was built in 1896 during Hungary's 1,000-year celebrations. It showcases the heroes of the Hungarian nation, the leaders who had strived valiantly against the nation's enemies throughout its history. One of the leaders showcased is a king by the name of Berlo IV. He ruled during the time of the Mongol invasion of Hungary in the 13th century, over 800 years ago. The leader of the Mongols, a grandson of Genghis Khan, had sent a letter to King Berlo ordering him to surrender his kingdom unconditionally or face complete destruction. Bela did not comply. The Mongols then came in, swiftly destroyed the Hungarian army, the king was lucky to escape, and in the space of little over a year, massacred half the nation. The Mongols left as swiftly as they came, heading back east to attend to the death of their great king. The destruction was so severe that afterwards, King Berlo IV, as he picked up the pieces, was uh, known as the second founder of Hungary. The wrath of the Mongols was horrific. It was cruel. It was barbaric. Is this what God's wrath is like? Bloodthirsty, arbitrary? Let me make a few points on God's wrath. Firstly, God's wrath is a broken-hearted wrath. God doesn't do it out of a sense of bloodlust, like the Mongols did, but out of justice. He takes no pleasure, he tells us, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, or indeed of anyone, but would rather they repent and live. The Bible tells us this is why he delays his judgment, so that as many people as possible can repent. Jesus will be coming back to judge. Some have said the Old Testament God is the God of wrath and vengeance, and that he grew, slash changed, slash evolved, so that, so that by the time we see him in the New Testament, shown by Jesus, he's a God of love and mercy. God is a God of love and mercy. But in Revelation chapter 19, it also provides a vivid picture of Jesus as a victorious warrior coming to judge all of humanity with justice and wrath at the end of the age. And unlike Hungary with the Mongols, it will be final and there will be no rebuilding. But as awful as it sounds, a way out has been provided. King Jesus, who will come back in wrath, took the wrath upon himself so that we don't have to. We must never forget, Jesus took God's wrath on himself. Not because he was bored, 
or because he felt it was his duty, but because of his great love for us. In that very well-known verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe that one day you and the whole world, all of us, will be judged by the just God of the universe? Or is that too much of a bizarre, perhaps offensive concept for you to believe in? Perhaps you are living life your way, on your terms, and you don't see the need to bow to the king of the universe. Psalm 110 presents us with a king Jesus, powerful and worthy. He calls all of us to submit to his loving and good leadership. Back when I was at university, I had a Turkish mate in my class. We played together on the university volleyball team. One day we had to go to the university sports office to fill in some paperwork, to register or something like that. So we get there and we're met by this white Aussie guy. He looks like he'd be far more comfortable riding a surfboard than sitting behind a desk. He starts by looking at me and says, and asking, what's your name? So I tell him, Nandor Balog. And he starts to write it down. And then he stops. The name is obviously too hard for him. He needs something a little easier to warm up with. So he looks at my Turkish friend and says, what's your name? And so my friend replies, Ege (laughs) Ugurlu. At this, our white Aussie friend throws down his pencil, shakes his head, and we all have a good laugh. (laughs) We've met Melchizedek in this psalm, the king and the priest with a peculiar name. But we shouldn't laugh at his name. We shouldn't make fun of it because Melchizedek points us to Jesus, our great high priest, our king and our judge. Jesus is no laughing matter. Instead, let's cling to him as our saviour from God's wrath and bow to him as our Lord. Let me pray. Dear God, thank you for Jesus that you made him king and judge, thank you that you have made him the perfect high priest through whom we can escape your just wrath and come into relationship with you. Help us to see you as you truly are. Amen.